Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Before I get to telling you about today's guest, I want to say a few words concerning today and the next few weeks. We are posting this episode a day early out of respect for the U.S. election. We think this episode contains some discussion that's important to our culture and society and wanted to share that on the last day before the main event. In addition, we want all the focus for our U.S. listeners tomorrow to be on the glorious right and responsibility that is voting. If you're not amongst the record number of people who have already cast their ballot, please get where you need to go and do what you need to do. Please vote. There are four more episodes left in this season of Spotlight On, all of which have been recorded. As a result, the conversations you'll hear in the coming weeks will not be tied into whatever the events of the day are, be that the election outcome, the ongoing COVID battle, and anything else. We do hope that you find the episodes interesting, useful, and that you stay in touch with us. Today, the spotlight's on J. Scott Christensen. Scott is a teacher, entrepreneur, and speaker. He's currently an associate teaching professor in the management department at the University of Missouri. Scott joins me to talk about his background and more specifically, the role and ramifications of artificial intelligence in many aspects of our 21st century lives. Enjoy. So uh, what room are you in there? It looks like there's I'm, all kinds of fun stuff going on. Yeah, there's all sorts of fun stuff. I'm in my basement. This is where I teach from now. So I've got a green screen when I need that. And, and I've got the whiteboard. I um, went to the uh, Home Depot and got one of those really cheap little things that you uh, hang closet doors on when we the COVID stuff hit. And set this up. And I got some, you know, visual things back here and little things I grab off of there to demo to students. But I'm really in this really cramped little space. This is a little tiny <laughs> place here. I got a little bar stool. And then this is, of course, all my, you know, my regular workshop. So all my tools and all that kind of stuff. Wow, um, that's quite a setup. But uh, anyway, it's nice to... Uh, Nice to have a place that's different than, you know, the rest of your house because then you can go down here and you're kind of like, I'm. this is where I do this work and I do other work elsewhere. So, Yeah, it's something like a commute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Well, thank you for making time today. It's, uh, it's nice to meet you in, uh, sort of in air quotes person and uh, I really yeah. appreciate your time. Um, I thought maybe we could get started. Um, maybe you could just tell me a little bit. Uh, I want to level set for the audience. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what your day job is and what you're up to now. Yeah, so I've got a great job. It's kind of a second career for me. I'm an, I've got promoted, so I'm actually an associate teaching professor. And so I get to teach information systems, project management, uh, things about emerging technologies to business students as well as students from all over the campus. And I had originally uh, started out running my own business. So I, for many years, I ran my own business. And so I, I do not, in fact, have a PhD, but I'm what they call professionally qualified to teach in these specific areas because I have a lot of expertise in these areas. So mm-hmm. I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Students ask questions I never would have thought of and screw stuff up in ways I never would have thought of. So um, it's always uh, keeps me on my toes. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, um, you have sort of a, um, 
I think I think the quote I read in, in some of your material was that you were into video conferencing before it was cool. <laughs> right, right. So I started in the nineties when you had to like set up a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment in a room and yeah. the audio didn't really work that well. You had to carpet the walls because uh you'd had problems with what we call echo, you know, and there wasn't the echo cancellation technology wasn't there yet. And um yeah, it was uh, a different world. And were you on the software side or what you know, what was your involvement? Well, it was no, it was on the hardware side. So I got started in 1993. I had been hired as a uh, technical coordinator for a network of small Missouri schools. And it's funny because this technology actually got deployed in small rural areas before it got deployed elsewhere. Because if you're in Slater, Missouri, you can't afford to hire a certified physics teacher, right? So, um, but the, the, the place down the road, 20 minutes away, well, they can, maybe they hire somebody. So you have your five students here, your five, four students there, and three students over here, and now you've combined to one class. So a lot of rural schools were actually using this technology to share classes. And it was wow. nicer than having something in like instruction by satellites because it was two-way. We could interact just like we're doing here. But at that time, it was with two big, huge tube-type TVs and uh, you know it was, the resolution was not very good, but it was certainly better than you know watching something and not being able to interact. So we called it ITV back in the day. So. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Was the um, were the pipes the public internet or did you have uh, dedicated networks? How did that work? Uh, yeah, so it was all dedicated T1 circuits at the time. Uh, so the internet. Uh, well, first of all, it was kind of just uh, that was the age of dial-up, right? So. Uh, um, and it wasn't until really the late 90s it got to where you might even think of supporting video calls. And then uh, in the 2000s, it actually got to the point where you could do that. And so in 2004 was when they made a big leap over and got rid of their dedicated T1 lines and went to doing everything over the Internet. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we had uh, ISDN connections then. So... Um, that was kind of a weird system that was used for dialing up connections. So it was kind of like a phone line you could dial places, but it's all digital. Yep. And not to not to belabor it too much, given how long ago it was, but I, I just I find that era of the of the early internet fascinating. Um, where where were the students? Were they in? Were they home or were they in uh, classroom locations? No, no, they were all in classrooms. So uh, there was no. Uh, you know, dial up over regular phone line or a plain old telephone or POTS lines, we used to call them, was really how anybody would access the internet. And you have to realize that was the days when internet uh, wasn't really much even web browsing. It was about email. Um, there were some things called gopher servers at the time. Uh, so that was before web servers. Maybe but Usenet. Usenet, AOL, you know, all these types, CompuServe. Um, and you would check your email once a week because we it was like a replacement for post mail, right? So we weren't on email 24-7 and using it like instant messaging like we do today. Yeah. Remember how exciting it was to actually see an email in the inbox? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, uh, in the late 80s, actually, my friend had moved to Washington, D.C., and it was before the Internet. It was called BitNet. 
Um, and uh, I remember sending him an email, and a couple days later, paying the long distance charge so I could talk to him and say, oh, wasn't that cool that I sent you an email? <laughs> so, probably cost us $10 to talk about how cool it was to send an email. It's <laughs> so. amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Um, I, have, I have a lot of similar, similar anecdotes like that. Um, so... Uh, so as not to, you know, to, to dissemble your entire 25, 30 year um, work history, can you tell me a little bit about how your, your sort of business life morphing into academia um, blended into your interest um, and your work around thinking about AI? Sure. So in my business, we always had to be looking for, you know, what is the next thing? And we were we were always involved in technology, so you had to be thinking about what is the next technology that's going to kind of transform things, that is going to enable customers to do something different. So we were always looking for emerging technologies and kind of evaluating them and learning about them. And so the same sort of thing has been going on as I go into the classroom, because I would say... Um, you know, things have been accelerating. The pace of change has happened, uh, is happening at a much uh, faster pace now. And certainly COVID has done a lot to accelerate that even more, right? It's kind of poured gasoline onto the fire, so to speak. So um, that's, you know, one of the things that I just talk about with my students a lot. So I, um, five years ago, we'd be talking about blockchain and Bitcoin because that was on the horizon. And now I'm talking about artificial intelligence and I've really come to decide myself that I think this idea of machine learning is really going to transform quite a number of industries. And so I've been concentrating on how do we think about that? What are the capabilities of it? When is a good time to use machine learning and when is it a bad time to use it? Yeah. Do me a favor, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you give me um, an accessible definition that you use for AI? I don't want to make any assumptions. Sure. So AI is a really big field. Okay. So if you just artificial intelligence, that means that a machine exhibits some sort of decision-making behavior. Okay? And that's a very general way to say that. And that goes from very simple if-then statements. So if you have a Roomba, one of those little robots, it says, okay, if I hit a wall, turn to the right. If I hit a wall again, turn to the right. That's, you know, some decision-making capabilities. And the other end of the spectrum is one that's really only imagined, and that's called general AI. So you have a machine that can act like a human. And we see this in science fiction a lot. We see this in movies, sometimes as a plot device where it's some sort of malevolent, you know, uh, AI. So it's not... Uh, some sort of Skynet or Terminator or in my era or our era would be HAL from 2001, uh, something like that. It's something called machine learning or also known as deep learning. So this is an area where we are able to set up a system that is often uses what we call neural nets. So we like to think it's kind of like a human brain, but it's, it's really not. But it's this idea you have these different nodes and they're interconnected. And we train that system. And we say, here's a picture of a cat. Here's a picture of a water bottle. Here's a picture of a wrench. And we tell it what those are, those different cases. And it makes different connections between those neurons stronger or weaker. 
And so this is our so-called deep learning. And what's neat about this is we don't have to sit there and program all these things about what a wrench looks like or what a cat looks like or what you know a water bottle looks like. We can just give it lots of training data and it will be able to classify these different images at a very uh, high level of accuracy. And this can be not only uh, image data, but text data, uh, voice data, uh, any type of data that we want to classify. Mm -hmm. And from that, it can actually make predictions then as well. So it can make predictions about new data that we present to it. So uh, a great example of how AI is probably going to affect you and me in the next year or two is how it's being used in medicine. So if you think about AI as being really good at pattern recognition, well, radiologists are really good at pattern recognition, or at least the good ones are, and so are pathologists. And being able to actually look at a radiograph um, and recognize certain patterns is what uh, these doctors do well. Well, an AI can actually do that better than doctors. So we can feed an AI lots of pictures of x-rays of people with pneumonia, uh, because we took an x-ray of them and then we actually did a culture and we know they had, had pneumonia. We can also have a whole bunch of pictures of people we thought had pneumonia, but it turns out the culture came back negative. And then a lot of pictures of people that are just regular people that don't have any, you know, uh, symptoms. Feed that all into an AI. Well, then Scott, Scott walks in with a bad cough into the uh, emergency room and that AI can look at the x-ray and determine uh, as good or better than a doctor, what is the likelihood that he has pneumonia. And so there's some areas like this that are just, uh, you know, really going to have some great positive effects. But that would be uh, it's probably a little more long-winded definition of what AI is, but um, maybe gives you an example of why people are excited about it nowadays. Yeah, no, that, that, that there's a lot there to use to, um, to jump off from. I guess one thing I'd like to ask is, um, again, just, just to not leave anything unsaid or, or leave anything assumed, why is the AI better than the pathologist at identifying pneumonia in the lung? Um, well, one is uh, because you can get uh, patterns that a human might not see or detect that can be revealed by an AI. So another good example is cardiology. So they have these EKGs, you know, where you have the little lines going across there. And they've found that uh, AIs can actually detect that there's something that the doctors hadn't seen before in people that have like low potassium. So being able to look um, at maybe areas that um, we didn't suspect would yield data. Okay, that's one way. And uh, just having the massive amount of training data. So you think about how long it's going to take a radiologist to um, see 100,000 x-rays. Well, that's going to take a while. Um, also, you know, to be frank, we all vary in our abilities throughout the day, whereas a uh, AI is not going to vary as much from one hour to the next as far as their ability to do something or see something. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, you know, growing up, um, I, 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 I'm going to guess by the gray in our beards, we're sort of generationally similar. Um, you know, growing up and being interested in computers and science fiction and sort of, you know, 
I came up during the, the, the you know, I, I think the first generation of kids that had computers in the home or at least had, you know, peers who had computers in the home, um, had some level of uh, exposure to computers in the classroom. Um, and then obviously the internet revolution. AI was always this thing. It was very much like um, autonomous robots, right? It was always, we knew it had been being studied for 40, 50 or more years, even at that point. And it was always something that was five or 10 years away, five or 10 years away, five or 10 years away. Um, and um, my assumption now is that, is it finally, what was the breakthrough? Was it simply the ramification of Moore's law and it's just a raw processing needed or were there certain milestones that were met in computer science? Yeah, so uh, uh, both. So you're exactly right about Moore's law that this idea that computers double in capability or speed every two years. And so you start that running for 50 years and uh, you go from something that has a hard time doing multiplication to uh, basically a supercomputer that we can wear on our wrists now. And so that has played a big part. Also, there have been several breakthroughs. One is that this idea of neural networks have been around for a while, but some of the math involved in how these get trained, how they reinforce, uh, it's kind of recurs recursion uh, to basically reinforce these connections and make certain ones stronger. That has been kind of the big breakthrough in machine learning uh, that uh, a lot of other researchers has taken off from. And you're exactly right. There have been a number of what we sometimes refer to as AI winters. So these are times when, you know, we thought we were going to make this great progress. So even in the 1950s, they were convinced that, you know, it's just a matter of years now and we're going to have a talking computer. And then we go through this you know, decades long winter until there's some other breakthrough and then there's more interest and then we find, okay, you know, there's not a lot of interest right now because there's no commercial applications for it. So that dies down again until the next breakthrough. But now we're really seeing, um, especially in this area of deep learning or machine learning, some significant breakthroughs that are having uh, impact on our society good and bad, so Facebook and all these other uh, companies that make a lot of money off of our behavior and sometimes by uh, keeping us angry. So I'd say I'm, I'm more valuable to Facebook if I'm angry and agitated and posting and, and uh, writing things uh, uh, about somebody I don't like or you know, a candidate I don't like. I'm more valuable and that's reinforced with some machine learning. So those are some bad examples. Going back to medicine, there's been over 50 machine learning algorithms that have been approved for human use. So there's going to be some really good things as well. And so um, I think the machine learning breakthrough is kind of unlike any of the other breakthroughs we've seen that led to some sort of AI winter. It seems that um, there's, a, there's a strange sort of dichotomy in the, in, in the AI or machine learning field where you know, when we look back, even over the course of our lifetimes, you know, you could joke about the, the cable box that had the cord that ran to the TV or how kids now don't really understand the idea of a landline. Like there's technological progress that's very um, overt and obvious. And you can, when you, when you look back over it, you can see the evolution. Machine learning seems much more subtle it's not clear necessarily where it seeps in and where it doesn't. And, and, you know, to your point, there are obvious areas where, um, whether there's a med a medical application, but I wonder if there are products or instances today where people are interacting with an AI that they'd be surprised to know they were. 
Um, if you have complained to your cable provider via a chat box on a website, you have been probably interacting with an AI. So when it comes on and says, hi, I'm Scott, how can I help you today? What these companies have done is they have taken all the previous chats that have gone on with real people, dumped them into an AI, to and and with a little bit of more instruction it's not just quite that simple but you know uh trying to lead okay well this person is trying to report a problem this person is wanting to add espn this person is wanting to renegotiate their package and can lead them uh, down the right pathway now what's interesting is most of those systems will have some way to pop it out to a real human so let's say I was to use a word in a different context. So normally um, I might ask, when is my contract going to end? But if I said, what, what's the sunset on my contract? Well, to an AI, it may not know that there's this weird use of the word sunset that is not the sun going down, but is in fact the ending of a relationship. And so they might uh, kick that then up to a person who would then understand that, oh, that means when's my contract end. So that may be one way that you've interacted. I think that a lot of people don't understand that some of the algorithms on places like YouTube and Facebook, uh, what they're seeing uh, is based on a machine learning algorithm. And unfortunately, those algorithms are often designed to keep us on site rather than to, uh, you know, make us more intelligent or rational or more empathetic toward our fellow uh, citizens of this planet. Yeah. One thing that I've never fully understood or is only becoming clear as I talk it out loud with you is um, the connection between, um, you know, the outrage and the monetization. And, um, you know, I understand that the, you know, outrage is a signifier of engagement, I guess, for those platforms. So like you were saying, the more you participate, you know, you're in a rant with somebody or you're having a, a battle with your distant cousin over politics, whatever, you know, whatever the use case is on social media. But it was never clear to me why that was valuable. Um, but I guess it's not the it's not the outrage itself that's monetized. It's that you've told the platform all this other stuff about you. And the right. outrage just gives a platform the opportunity to keep you on the platform. Exactly, exactly. It's not that uh, Facebook or any of uh, these platforms ha are purposely trying to set out and do that, but they're telling their machine learning algorithms, I want to maximize the time on site because I want to maximize the number of ads that Scott sees. And I know that a 52-year-old white male that lives in Missouri uh, often gets agitated or uh, not, not to say agitated, but will spend more time on site if they see these types of posts or if they see these types of videos. That seems to be working with these other 52-year-old white males. So let's try it out on Scott and see how it works. And um, yep, he's staying on site longer. He's seeing more ads. He's clicking on more ads. Um, we know what types of ads we can serve to him based on that content. So he's watching a video about uh, you know, uh, how the government is uh, doing some sort of chemtrails thing. And so maybe we can sell him some tinfoil hats or something like that. I don't know what comes next exactly. But uh, yeah, so the machine learning algorithms, you know, they just optimize. Uh, so it's really, uh, they're looking at our behavior, feeding us information, seeing if that engages us more. And yeah. unfortunately, um, we don't like to admit it, but we can be nudged 
in different areas pretty easily. And in fact, there's an old expression that it's easier to fool somebody than convince them they've been fooled. And, uh, you know, I know that I can be nudged if I see some guy that looks like me and he's got some new sport jacket and he's, he's looking younger and he's, you know, uh, looking like he's having a great life because of it, uh, then I start thinking about that sport jacket, right? So um, we're all susceptible to uh, wanting to be liked, wanting to uh, uh, have people desire us. And so we can uh, see those ads and we can uh, convince ourselves that we want to be that type of person. And we can also convince ourselves um, that there's other, uh, well, we can also kind of reinforce our biases, right? So if I think that, um, you know, people of a certain political party are, you know, corrupt, and then I see an evidence of that, I'm going to uh, count that a little bit more than when I see uh, evidence of my political party being corrupt, right? So we discount that. So we also tend to discount those things we don't believe in and over-amplify those things we believe in. So it's the so-called confirmation bias. So we have this kind of confirmation, oh, that confirms my belief, and we discount anything that would contradict it. Is there a solution to the problem of machine learning in the social media context that people from across the political spectrum could agree upon? Is there any common ground that, is there something that would alarm everyone enough to join forces or would speak to the common interests enough? And whether those are base interests or enlightened interests, I don't, you know, I, I sort of, I leave that to you to, to determine. Um, I do think that having more one-on-one -on -one conversation is more valuable than this kind of uh, mass um, Oh, I don't know if I, what I want to call it, but, uh, you know, this There's kind like of, a peacocking element. Like, I, yeah, I need yeah. to now make my point. I need to be heard. I need to be clever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that I can't, I, I couldn't stand to watch these debates that happened recently for the presidential election because uh, you think about the Lincoln-Douglas -Doug debates. I mean, they went on for, what, two days? And they was just on one topic? <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, <laughs> address climate change. You've got 10 seconds. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, these are very complex issues and there's, people have tended to gravitate toward either side because we've lacked that kind of conversation. Uh, and we've lacked um, the ability to see um, things that challenge those biases, right? And so uh, there is uh, an effort, I don't know if you have watched the um, Social Dilemma, it's a um, Netflix video. If you haven't, I would suggest people watch that and they talk about um, the social media and how this AI is being used in it. And there's a, a group led by Tristan Harris called the Center for Humane Technology. And he's really trying to say, what, how can we move beyond this? How can we move beyond this and start to address real problems? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's very, I think, I, I find it personally difficult as both a, a conversationalist and an observer to talk about some of these topics without it veering towards maybe the hysterical at times, right? Like, especially around social media and rightfully so that it's so loaded, especially around the topic of, of AI. Um, where do you come down or how do you think about some of the genuine, you know, concern and fear? Now, I guess on the one extreme is that, you know, the machines are taking over. Um, but I guess the softer variations of that are the impact on, jobs or, you know, the ability to earn. Um, 
you know, what are the, what are the, what are the, what are the apocalyptic scenarios to you that are not hysterical, but that are, that are societal concerns? Yeah. So, uh, I'm not afraid of Skynet. I'm not afraid of the Terminator or something like that. I do think that the idea of humans using AI against other humans to try and manipulate their behavior, especially on the social media platforms is one of the things that is uh, probably most disturbing as far as apocalyptic scenarios, if that's what you'd like. The other thing is we do need to start talking about job loss. We need to talk about how this technology is going to be used. Now, in some of the examples I've given you, like radiologists and pathologists, I don't think they're going to be replaced by an AI. I think the role of a radiologist or pathologist may change. I think they may find out that they're able to get their results quicker to a patient and they're able to maybe do a little more communication with that patient. Uh, maybe they need to have a little more emotional intelligence to talk with Scott about uh, what they discovered and uh, maybe work out a plan for, you know, based on Scott's behavior and who he is, whether um, this will work well for him. Uh, whatever treatment might be recommended or whatever options might be presented. But there are other areas where we could see automation drastically impacting uh, entire fields. So if you start to look at a, even white-collar jobs like accounting, where we have not only AI but other technologies like blockchain, which may change the role of an accountant in some significant ways, where we could start to see an AI being able to do your taxes for you. Um, and so I think that's something we have to start to think about. And in fact, some people that have thought about this hard are really worried about the loss of jobs. So Bill Gates has proposed this idea that robots should pay taxes uh, or algorithms should pay taxes because um, they're replacing those jobs and we need that income. Uh, Kao Fu Lee, who wrote a book called AI Superpowers and worked uh, as the AI person uh, in China for Google for many years uh, has come up with this idea that you should be, we should be paying people for other types of work that they do, you know, producing podcasts, doing creative work, uh, caring for family members, so caring for your mother-in-law or something like that. Um, other folks like Andrew Yang have come up with this idea of a freedom dividend. You know, there's all this productivity being generated. We should all share in that. And so there's some interesting ideas there. If you look at uh, some of the blue collar jobs like uh, trucking, you know, a, a autonomous trucks could be a revolution and could be a great benefit to society because these trucks could run 24-7, they'd be much safer, have less trucks on the road, and it could, uh, you know, really change things. But that's three million people that make pretty good money, and I'm not saying that they don't use their brains, but they're using their body a lot um, in this job, and, um, you know, that's going to be a, a significant impact on our economy and certainly on those people. Now, are those people going to be able to transition naturally into being AI programmers? I don't know. I think I would have, you know, if I was not in this position, I would have a, a hard time in my 50s making a transition um, to some new area of expertise. And I think, um, you know, that's going to be uh, difficult. I think there are some net benefits, but we have to start to think about those people that are going to be displaced. Um, and so given some of the, um, some of the struggles that you know, we have here in this country around like consensus on things, even, you know, you take job training, job training is like a, a you know, relevant example to what you just said. Um, 
we can't we can't agree on like how do we how do we retrain um, an automobile manufacturer you know a line assembly worker into some other type of work? Is there a country or is there a region? Um, is there somebody that that you think is doing a great job of preparing its citizenry or preparing its society for this shift, um, better or worse than anyone else? Well, it's interesting because, um, and I wish I had gotten some uh, examples, but there have been a couple of countries and cities that have experimented with some sort of universal basic income. And, of course, mm -hmm. here in the U.S., we kind of had this pushback, you know, that's, that's this welfare, or that's, you know, I don't want people to get money that haven't worked for it. Well, it turns out that if you have a little bit of income and you have some health care uh, that is guaranteed, that actually frees you up to do new things. So they're actually finding that people are more entrepreneurial if they know that I'm not risking at all. And so I have a good friend that's here in Columbia and he would start his own business in a heartbeat if he knew there was some way that he could uh, not be risking his entire future for his family. And, um, you know, we like to consider ourselves entrepreneurial here in the U.S., but we're actually at an all-time low as far as new businesses getting started. So it was in the 70s that we actually had the most new businesses getting started. And we look at the stock market and look at um, what's going on with our economy. Well, it's really these very few huge firms that are making tons of money that are buoying up the stock market and it's the small shops, the small hardware shops, the small restaurants, they're going out of business. And um, so I'm really concerned about that trend. You know, we have this idea that these huge companies are okay, um, but I'm not sure that if you really look at the American tradition, that monopoly is always good for us. And breaking up some of these countries might be controversial, but it would oxygenate the economy, right? Yeah. So you know, you just can't compete in social network. Uh, you can't compete in video and search. Um, well, if you broke YouTube out of Google, I bet you that YouTube would figure out how to do search, and I bet you Google would figure out how to do video, and I bet you there'd be opportunities for other folks to come in as well. And so, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, you see a lot of development in some weird areas like Bitcoin and blockchain. Well, why is that? It's not necessarily because those are the most exciting areas. It's because these big tech firms have all the other stuff locked up, right? So they, if, I, if you and I figure out the best way to have a social network, are we going to get any funding for that? No, right? And if we actually make a little bit of headway, then uh, Facebook will just steal our ideas and put it into Instagram or whatever it is. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so competition is good, I think. I'm a, I'm a capitalist, and so I think that competition is is a good thing. Based on our current uh, our current schedule, it's very likely that this episode is going to air or be released on Election Day. Oh wow! And, yeah, and I I'd realized that this morning before we spoke. And I wonder, um, you know, it's very difficult to separate the conversation around the social networks and some of these, you know, some of the topics we've talked about so far from what's going on in our political system and in our, you know, in our relationships with each other. Um, to sort of, to sort of re-ask re a question I asked you earlier, what are some areas that people would be surprised in the political process where AI is influencing them um, and they don't think they're being influenced today? 
So one of the big problems that I have with political advertising on social media platforms is these AIs are so sophisticated that they can do micro-targeting at the individual level. So there might be an ad that's customized. Uh, the candidate might decide, well, today I'm going to have 40,000 different ads generated. Okay? And Scott gets this one ad that says that uh, candidate uh, X, you know, really um, has an anti-hedgehog policy and he's never liked hedgehogs. And Scott, you know you're part of the Hedgehog Alliance group uh, and you know that if this person is elected, he's going to outlaw hedgehogs. And uh, so not only should you buy more hedgehogs today, but you need to make sure you vote against candidate uh, X because of that. Now, if this was a ad that was airing on the news, or if it was adding on a broadcast media, somebody's going to see that, and they're going to do a truthometer, right? And they're going to, and now it's after the fact. It's still not great that this person lied, but um, you're going to see something that says, "Okay, candidate X actually likes hedgehogs. He owned three hedgehogs earlier." I'm trying to pick some example that's not in the news. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I go, I go to I go to the more dire examples. Of Everybody's looking up. What's a, what's a hedgehog? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so that's one of the things that's really disturbing to me is that you can have this kind of individual manipulation without and any that's real today yeah so that's real today so um, you can uh, now Facebook has actually started to do something where they will post those ads so that it can be scrutinized but that has been since the last election now Twitter has decided that um, they will not do political ads well, now that gets into a whole another set of issues of what is political, right? So if I run an ad that says, you know, trees are good and we shouldn't have air pollution, well, is that now a political ad? Uh, is that an issue ad? Um, you know, where does that fall? So uh, unfortunately, these social media companies really favored growth over any sort of thoughtful ideas about how could our platform be misused. And I think that if they had started out thinking, well, how could this end up as a Black Mirror or Twilight Zone episode <laughs> uh, when they were first developing this, uh, they might have figured some of this stuff out. You know, Facebook introduced this live video, and so anybody could do live video. Well, they didn't think somebody was going to commit a murder or suicide. I mean... I think you and I would have figured that out, uh, that it would have been used for bad stuff because we've seen all sorts of uh, technology used for bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the, um, yeah, that's, that's a very good, that's a very good example. And it, and, and it speaks to sort of um, the cycle we're in where, where, as you were giving that example, I was thinking, it seems like that was a decade ago and it was probably three years ago. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I can't even place it in time. I can't even place it in time anymore. Well, I saw something on the news that really made me feel, I don't know if it made me feel old or just not understand how time works. Um, it was 19 years ago that Steve Jobs introduced the iPod, not the, not the, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about the original thing that is the thousands songs. It was really chunky you know, but it was a revolution at the time. And that was when yeah. we were still uh, ripping CDs, right? Yeah. So we were taking CDs and turning them into re MP3s. So. 
Yeah, I tell you how many times in the last year I've I've, I've had arguments with people who insist they had um, an iPhone in the early two thousands. Like they uh-huh. would go to their grave arguing that they've had an iPhone since before two thousand seven. Um, and to your point, like there's no <laughs> there's no fact that can dissuade them from that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's 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 uh, let's let's play at the two extremes for a minute. Um, you talked a little bit about some, you know, some repercussions that are not pleasant. Um, what's something that, that gives you real optimism for um, the applications of technologies, even at a very big scale? What's a societal change that would be very exciting? Well, um, I have been looking at autonomous vehicles for some time, and I really decided they were all hype. But I was recently talking with a friend of mine, he's actually a professor as well, and he's in San Francisco, and he tells me that he gets passed about five times a day by an autonomous vehicle of one sort or another. And he really thinks that this is going to happen soon, and that the COVID crisis has really moved this thing forward. And uh, in fact, in Japan, they're actually allowing autonomous vehicles to deliver groceries, so being able to deliver stuff. And... Uh, I was thinking, well, this is, you know, maybe going to happen in 15 years, but I'm becoming more and more convinced this may be just within the next year. And it may be because of COVID that we'll see this stuff move forward. And there's about a million people a year that are killed on our highways and certainly many uh, throughout the world, uh, not the U.S. Um, The U.S. has actually been going down at 40,000 or a little bit less every year. And um, that's going to have a big for the people that lose that loved one, that's going to have a big impact. And, of course, uh, for the people that get injured, that's going to have a big impact as well. So I think that's going to have um, enormous repercussions for us. I think that we're going to see retail change in some ways and supply chains. Um, you know, So why have a grocery store laid out the way it is if you have 20% of your folks are doing delivery? Right now we have uh, three Hy-Vee stores, Hy-Vee is our local uh, chain here, and they have, um, uh, you know, they have people going through the aisles picking stuff out. Well, I'm betting that probably within the year there'll be a Hy-Vee store that is totally automated, just with a bunch of robots, and they are going to pick those groceries, and uh, then those will be delivered. And so we won't be. Uh, uh, we'll have these specialty kind of stores. So I think that's, um, you know, a couple of interesting areas that uh, we're going to see some automation come about. And uh, I do think that um, medicine has some just amazing things that it can do with this. So looking at even drug interactions, uh, AI has been used with the battle against COVID to try and figure out how these proteins are folding. Um, I don't know what the results of that are. I've seen that, uh, you know, how it was being uh, Uh, different models are being worked on. But um, I think that's going to be one of the real positive areas. Yeah. Have you, um, where you live geographically, are there any of the uh, Amazon grocery stores or Amazon Go's? No, not yet. But I'm seeing, uh, what I am seeing is uh, uh, Amazon uh, delivery trucks all over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm in Seattle and I worked at Amazon for a spell. And um, I was in the uh, the headquarters building that they call day one. And the original uh, Amazon Go was on the ground floor. And, you know, it opened up to employees first. And um, there was, a, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of hardware and software bugs to be worked out. 
but I had to wonder if um, it was also part of that, that AI training process you talked about, like the pattern recognition, how do you tell when somebody picks something up, puts it back? Or if I walk in with a child, you know, am I, do I have to pay for the child on the way out? You know, um, but it's, it's really a magical experience. I mean, um, and I say that, you know, in the, in the, in the complete sense that, you know, magic is, uh, you know, technology we haven't figured out yet. Um, it's, it's really amazing to, to, walk into a grocery store, take something off the shelf and walk out that, that feeling at first of like, Oh my goodness, I've, you know, I've shoplifted. And then 30 seconds later, the receipt shows up um, Uh and it's accurate. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. Um, And to see now that they're doing it in larger and larger and larger uh, physical footprints, it's astounding. And, um, but of course it does, you know, it it does raise the, the thought of like, you only need a few attendants milling around, making sure everything's okay. And the, the, the shelves are stocked or that things are neatly lined up. Um, you don't need an army of people and right. uh, you have to wonder where those folks are going to go. Um, well, Scott, thank you so much for talking about some of this stuff with me. I, I really appreciate your insight. Um, it's a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a while. So I'm, I'm so happy that we had the chance to connect on it. Um, and uh, before we go, I just want to ask, are you and yours uh, holding up okay during this whole crazy time? We're doing well, and we, uh, I'm lucky enough uh, being a uh, professor here at the University of Missouri, a teaching professor. They've allowed me to teach from home, so I have all my accoutrements here. I've got a whiteboard and document camera, and uh, my students have been remarkable in that they are uh, you know, willing to adapt and overcome. Uh, we're doing all sorts of things that I never thought we'd do. Uh, normally, I do a project management class, and we teach a methodology called Scrum, in order to teach that, we uh, build a city out of Legos, and so we weren't able to do that, so uh, we elected to do it in Minecraft. And I said, okay, oh, well, I'll teach you guys Scrum, but you're going to have to teach me how to use Minecraft <laughs> so I, c- I can at least see what's going on. And, um, you know, I think the students have been remarkable. They also realize that, you know, one of the things you do in a crisis is you just, you know, work hard. Right. So uh, you got to kind of work hard. I've been amazed at my students, the number that are taking care of um, parents, taking care of uh, one woman that was taking care of her grandma with dementia. Um, They're doing online internships. You know, they don't like, I would say by and large, they don't like online, but they're figuring out how to adapt. So I've been, um, you know, remarkably pleased with how my students uh, have been responding. So. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much, Scott Christensen. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. While you're listening, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks in advance. As always, keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you, be safe, stay in touch, and vote.